Someone who did love praying. Someone who in many ways exudes the very same. 
official text again is 2 Samuel 7, 18 through 19, or 29 rather. A prayer from David to God that should be a model for all of us, a, a true ideal. We will be looking at some other aspects of chapter 7 as well, and specifically exploring three broad points. When David prays, why David prays, and perhaps most importantly, how David prays. My prayer is that as we look closely at the circumstances and content of David's prayer, we will be convicted to reaffirm and reconsecrate our priorities and our time, that our hearts will be deeply inclined to God and to drawing near to Him in quiet rest and supplication. Point one, when David prays. Looking back to the beginning of chapter 7, and even further, chapters 5 and 6, a number of notable things have occurred. Chapter 5, verse 6, we read that the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who spoke to David, saying, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you, thinking, David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. It's interesting to note that this is the first instance of the word Zion in all of Scripture, and the only place Later coming to denote all of Jerusalem and eventually all of Israel, we can begin to appreciate the theological significance of David's coming into the fullness of his kingship on Mount Zion, Jerusalem, the city of peace, a clear signpost among many of David's archetypal connection with Jesus. Later in chapter 5, verse 17, we are told that the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel. All the See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent. 
was even more so in the time of David. You'll often hear the phrase in Scripture, the cedars of Lebanon, as a cherished commodity to all people of the Near East. For David, the cedar home represented something luxurious and aromatic, a kingly abode. Not so in David's mind of God's resting place. For the Ark of the Covenant lay amidst fabric, a tent, tattered and torn, war weary and road weary. And David very much desired to rectify the oversight, to provide for God a dwelling place fit for the divinity, a holy temple. The of course, sees no problem with the endeavor and encourages David to do all that is in his heart, for the Lord is with him. But not so fast, David, and not so fast, David. The Lord's thoughts are, of course, far above our own, including David and Nathan, and has no intention of having a will for him. God had this. We hear God speak to Nathan in verse 5. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but I moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, Thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel, and have been with you wherever you have gone, and, and have cut off all your enemies before you, and have made you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own and rule no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them anymore, since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. Also, the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. There's a lot to unpack here, and the sermons I focused on these earlier verses primarily, but it's important to understand what precipitates the prayer David prays at the end of the chapter. We have this beautiful declaration of what God has done for his people up to this point. And almost like an addendum tacked on at the end, Oh yeah, and tell David that he doesn't build me a house. I build him a house. Curious, because David has just finished explaining in detail the beauty of his new cedar home. But we, of course, understand the house God speaks of. It's not a temporal home, it's an enduring home that will have no end. We can discern for ourselves that David has been through a series of fortuitous events. He's riding high, for lack of a better term. And then we hear God speak and confirm to David through Nathan all that has been done for him and all that will be done for him. Going so far as to highlight David's lowly station as a shepherd prior to his rise from the moment. And that, friends, is the occasion for the beautiful prayer found in the later verses of chapter 7. That's the when. And I ask you, do you pray when things are going particularly well for you? Do you cry out to God when you're feeling good? When everything is coming on basis, do you quietly and soberly seek out the Lord when you ponder the station you found in him and the station you find yourself in now? I know that I will. And I think this is one of the primary problems with prayer and the attitudes about prayer in this country. Whether we would consider
means that you will on this exam. God, please give me the strength and mental fortitude to see it through. Most recently, our country experienced another terrible shooting, this time in rural Oregon. Everyone in the public, led by the president himself, declared that our prayers are with the families. How often have you seen the president come on air to say, we've had a great fiscal quarter, unemployment is down, wages are up, and peace is being achieved throughout the world. Let's turn to the Lord now in prayer. Of course it doesn't happen, and it wouldn't happen, and we are there different. When things are going well for us, prayer is the last thing on our minds. Heck, when things are bad, they need to get really bad before we are genuinely moved to examine our prayer lives. And David stands before us in stark contrast to this brand of pessimistic prayer, a fair weather prayer. Lord, when things, when things get really hairy, I'm going to need you to have my back. But when things get better, I'm sorry, I just can't fade in. We need to be smart in prayer during times of relative ease, as in times of strife. And what of our station and our positional relationship with the holy and righteous God? Is David so different than us? You might say, of course he was. He was a king. He was a man after God's own heart. He has his own covenant, the Davidic covenant. I don't have my own covenant. That time covenant isn't a thing, as far as I can tell. Well, look closer, friends. God is swift to point out just where David was when he found him. Youngest of a brood, better men, tending sheep in the field, not working enough to even be presented by Jesse to Samuel. God not only raised him up to overcome his enemies, strong nations that outnumbered David and the nation of Israel, he promised him that through him the Messiah would come, and all the nations of the earth would be blessed. He would build him a house made of things far more precious than the secret. Friends, that is where God found you, lowly and unworthy, and he called you by name, he redeemed you, he anointed you, and he brought you into adoption as co-heirs with Jesus himself, to rule and reign with him forever. There is no greater truth in this world. There is no greater reason to be on your knees daily in prayer to God. We know from other texts, namely the Psalms, that David was swift to pray in times of need. That is, of course, true and appropriate for us as well. But we find here that even in the best of times, our hearts and our minds should be on the things of God. And we should never be inclined to Him, praying to Him ceaselessly. And now that we've considered the when, we should turn our attention to the why. And that may seem like a silly question, very lofty, very philosophical. Why does, why do I pray? Why does David pray? I can assure you that it's practical, there are practical applications for it. You know, as a young, budding, Calvinist, baby Christian, I struggled heavily with prayer. In fact, prayer has been my most enduring struggle. Having graduated from baby Christian to the bison stage before you, I still find myself scoffing at certain types of prayer. Like the long dinner prayer. Anybody familiar with the long dinner prayer? You know the one where halfway through the prayer, people are like, you know, peering through one eye to figure out what their first bite is going to be, or who took the bigger piece of chicken. Or the Father God prayer. This one's a little more local. I grew up in Massachusetts. Anybody who's been around Central Western Mass, there's a picture of the prayer with the, the, you know, the Worcester accent. The Father 
be caught holding hands. We can laugh if we want. But the truth is, it speaks volumes to our sincerity and commitment to God and God's Word. Whenever we catch ourselves doing that, all prayer, no matter the occasion, when generated from a place of earnest love of God and a desire to be in communion with Him, is to be praised and encouraged. And as we turn back to David, we're going to find some sobering truths about our need to fall on our face before God continually. As we've already mentioned, things have been going very well for David. Not only that, David has taken it upon himself to make sure that God is the next featured guest on MTV Cribs. God is going to get a sweet house. David is going to see it. But it's not the events leading up to that point, the battle of victories, or all the secret houses of Lebanon, that prompt David to understand the question, why do I pray? God's message through the end that promised a glorious prayer at the end of chapter 7. Looking and starting in verse 11, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chase him with the rod of men and the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so many spoke to David. You know, the continuity that we find in Scripture has always astounded me. It's always been my personal source of internal apologetics whenever my faith is shaken. The way in which God's promises and the way he brings to fruition those promises are the same from Genesis to Revelation. And as God speaks through Nathan, we can follow. Like the river in Ezekiel that flows from the holy throne, God's promise from the garden straight through scripture. Going back to Genesis 3.15, speaking to the serpent, I will put my enmity between you and the woman seed and her seed. He shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. In verse 21, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. I will build you a house. Genesis 12, speaking to Abraham, get out of your country, from your family and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse who curses you. And in you all the families of here in 2 Samuel, speaking to David, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish his throne, the throne of his kingdom forever. Why does David fall on his knees in prayer? He plainly tells us in verse 27, For you, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found it in his heart to pray this prayer to you. David is awestruck at the promises of God to him and to us. The same promise from Genesis through David, right on through to the cross. That promise is the gospel prophecy. That God would choose me, set me apart, save me, and bring me to himself to enjoy him forever. What can David do? Of such monumental grace. He just got finished wiping the blood 
which I think much prayer has become. And when I looked closely at David's prayer at the end of chapter 7, I felt almost like I was reading the Valley of Vision again. Look at that prayer again with me, starting in verse 18. I'm going to add an emphasis. <clears throat> then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was a small thing in your sight, O Lord God, and you have also spoken in your servant's house for a great while to come. Is this the manner of man, O Lord God? Now what more can David say to you? For you, Lord God, know your servant, for your words sake, and according to your own heart, you have done all these great things to make your servant known that to make your servant know them. Therefore, you are grateful, Lord God, for there is none like you, nor is there any God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people, like Israel, the one nation on the earth whom God ought to redeem for himself as a people, to make for himself a name, and to do for yourself great and awesome deeds for your land, before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, the nations and their gods. For you have made your people Israel, your very own people forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. Now, O Lord God, the word which you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, establish it forever and do as you have said, so let your name be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the God over Israel. Now let the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found it in his heart to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this goodness to your servant. Now, therefore, let it please you to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue before you forever. For you, O Lord God, have spoken it, and with your blessing, let the house of your servant be blessed forever. I don't know if anybody was counting. That's 44 times in 11 verses that David mentioned you or Lord. His prayer is just one giant you, you, you. I can stop right there. That's the answer to the question of prayer. How does David pray? You, dumb, and sermon. But alas, there is a bit more to be said. Why don't we like to pray like this? Why are our hearts not inclined to worship God through prayer this way? It's often so inward. Lord, I'm struggling with this. Please help me with that. Lord, we need your help. <clears throat> help us. Even David could have excused to pray that way given the recent events of his life. Lord, you have carried me through and sought fit to raise me up. You have caused nations to fall before me. Now please establish my house forever as you promised. He doesn't pray that way because it would ultimately be blasphemous. It would assume that somehow any of this is about David. And despite some of David's misgivings, I think we can conclude that ultimately, David guessed that none of this has to do with him. And subsequently, that, prim that primarily informs the how of his prayer. Lord, you have done this because it pleases you, and you will carry me through, and you will see your kingdom established forever. I invite you to pray this way. Practically speaking, I invite you to pray with the understanding that it's not about you either. It's about God and who He is and what He has done and what He is going to do. 
Save us, bring us to you, and allow us to. 